With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch radio program. Uh, We are the authors of Bright Not Broken. I'm Diane Kennedy along with Rebecca Banks. Rebecca, good evening. Hi, Diane. Hi, Dan. How are you all? Hi there. We are so excited to introduce to you tonight Dan, Dr. Dan Peters, that is. Let me tell you just a little bit about what we're going to be talking about tonight and a little background on Dan, and then I'm going to let him tell you about himself. But Dan, uh, Dr. Dan Peters joins us tonight to discuss his two brand-new books. They're sort of a series that go together. And I myself am very excited about them and excited to recommend them. They're called From Warrior to Warrior, and that book is for teens and tweens. It's designed to teach you how to conquer the worry monster. And also the companion book for that is for parents, Making Your Warrior a Warrior, which uh, provides useful methods that parents can use to help their children create an anxiety-reducing toolbox an issue that is near and dear to my heart and Rebecca's, I know. Oh, yes. (laughs) So, absolutely, this is an exciting topic tonight. So, um, Dr. Peters is a licensed psychologist. He's co-founder and clinical director of the Summit Center, which is another incredible center that we highly recommend. Um, He specializes in gifted, talented, and creative individuals. They provide educational and psychological assessments, consultations, and treatment for children, their parents, and families. And um, his professional interests include the diagnosis and misdiagnosis, which, of course, is near and dear to our hearts, of gifted and twice exceptional individuals, and helping individuals tame the worry monster and maximize one's developmental potential. Welcome, Dan. We're so glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me tonight. And is it okay if we call you Dan? We usually preface Please that call with me all Dan. of our doctors. Okay. I prefer to be called Dan. <laughs> oh, <good>. Okay. <laughs> we um, we want to make sure we give you the respect that's due, though, because it takes a phenomenal doctor to teach us how to tame the worry monster. Absolutely. And we're excited about that. 
Well, t- tell us a little bit about your background. Um, give us some some um, background history here on the Summit Center and what led you to this series of Taming the Worry Monster. Sure. Well, I've been uh, practicing as a licensed psychologist for some time now, and I'd always specialized in children, adolescents, and families. And over the years found that a common issue that people of all ages were dealing with was anxiety, different levels of worry and fear. And I also found over time and sitting in school meetings and IEP meetings and trying to help explain kids to teachers, to parents, that often their behavior was seen as very oppositional and and actually could be very oppositional, lots of meltdowns. Lots of diagnostic categories being thrown around to describe these kids that were very intense and uh, very sensitive and seen as having trouble regulating their emotions. And the more and more I dug into it, I realized that, wow, there's a common thread here and that a lot of these kids and adolescents and their parents are dealing with a lot of worry. And with kids especially, it, it, it wasn't very obvious that it was worry. It, it, it came out as behavior. And the more I dug into this and thought about different techniques and draw, uh, sort of put different aspects of training experience that I had together, I stumbled on what I call is nothing new, but this approach which combines people, uh, a narrative approach of externalizing the problem, that's where we get the worry monster, a lot of cognitive behavioral practices, and then some of the mm-hmm. really useful mindfulness-based practices to really give people tools that I saw worked over time. And the other, and the other thing that I found is as we begun to specialize more and more in bright and creative kids, that these kids seemed to be wired in a way that they were more susceptible to anxiety. And so at our center where we were specializing these kids, a common thread through and through, regardless if it was an educational issue or a home issue or regulation issue, was this worry. And it was insidious and it would sneak up on them and it would really debilitate them. And as you mentioned in the introduction, one of the things that I'm passionate about is helping people realize their full potential, and it seems like anxiety is one of the primary things that keeps people from fully living and fully experiencing and fully bringing all of their talents to bear. So at Summit Center, we take a very strength-based approach to all of what I just discussed, but specifically for our topic tonight, is really spending a lot of time helping people understand how worry and fear works and how they can take very active steps to mitigate it and reduce this worry monster so they can enjoy life and uh, experience all it has to offer. Wow. Well, you just described so much of what I know that my family's experienced. I know that Diane's been through a lot of these same struggles watching um, as our children, ourselves, and and as a teacher, uh, I see the externalizing behaviors that you talked about too and how it shows up in the classroom, particularly in in my uh, more creative and gifted students. And um, the idea that um, you have um, just teaching them to see the cognitive behavioral therapy along with the mindfulness. And, and I love, um, in your book, you mentioned about talking about the amygdala and um, the family that, that was laughing because I think understanding that this is indeed a fear response 
and that this is coming from a part of the brain that doesn't necessarily define the person itself, but it's something that, that at some level does control the, the child as well. Um, you do a good job of explaining those physical challenges that result from the intense emotion. Can you talk about how this amygdala kicks in and the chain reaction that kind of spirals out and how it looks in the families and what we can do, the kids? Yes, and you're hitting on a really key point, and that is what I discovered was that giving kids and adults information Mm-hmm. that they could just run with it. And this is information that, as you know, as an educator, we ask ourselves, why don't we get, give kids this kind of information in school? Um, right. You know, it, we, we, often we're having kids memorize lots of things about different facts and different, different dates, and, and it's like, wow, this is really important information to teach them about how their brain works. So if you can imagine the model of a brain, and uh, this is something that I use in my office and use when I give talks, pictures of the brain, and you saw a picture in the book, and buried deep inside the brain is this little almond in our limbic system, which is our emotional, the emotional center of our brain. There's this little almond, which is what amygdala stands for, and that's our fear center. And that's the thing that is always sensing danger. That's the little part of our brain and our bodies that is designed to keep us alive through our evolutionary history. So I always think of it as this little you know, sensor going do-do-do-do-do-do-do, almost like an alarm system. And it is looking for anything that is going to threaten our life because, of course, a long time ago we needed to uh, not get eaten by saber-toothed tigers and not let other um, um, villagers or other um, hunters or warriors take our stuff or our people. So our job was just to stay alive. And that amygdala still exists in us today, and for many of us, it's still a fairly overactive amygdala. Um, we need those in dark alleys. We need those if we're in war, war-torn lands or very dangerous neighborhoods, but we don't need our amygdala when we're walking into a birthday party, taking a test, giving a speech in front of the class. Um, and what that amygdala does is right when it senses danger, it sends a message immediately to our adrenal glands to pump massive amounts of adrenaline, which produces the fight-and-flight response. Again, how do we run away really fast to get away from something, or how do we fight really hard to survive? And when that happens, a whole bunch of things happen in our body. And for our kids, they get overwhelmed with body feelings that they often can't describe and are real scary. And what they need to know is that the reason the heart is pumping out of their chest and they feel like it's going to explode is because the adrenaline is being pumped through the bloodstream to our arms and our legs so we can run and, so, and fight. And by doing so, our body takes blood from our primary organs to put them in our arms and our legs. So it leaves our brain. Blood, most of our blood leaves our brain because we don't need to solve complicated formulas when we're running or fighting. And as a result, we get lightheaded, we get dizzy, we have headaches, we have um, a faint feeling. And all of this, you know, isn't really good when you're trying to remember your math equations during a math test, right? When your blood is leaving your brain. And then what happens is the kids, you know, they, I have a stomach ache, I have to go to the bathroom, my stomach hurts, and you have the butterflies. Well, our blood is leaving the next largest organ that carries blood supply besides the brain, which is our stomach. And so we are, our blood is rerouted to our arms and our legs because we don't need to digest our, our, our food when we're running or fighting for our lives. And then the other thing it does is besides going to our arms and our legs, 
people get tingling sensations in their arms and their legs, and that's because since our bodies are built to survive, the blood actually leaves the surface of our skin so we can be wounded in battle and not bleed to death. So we still have this survival response in situations when we mostly don't need them. And so what I found is explaining this basic biology lesson to these kids, their eyes would get really big. And it, it provided the first explanation and discussion by which to talk about something scary in a scientific way. So mm-hmm. right away we can ask kids, is the worry monster visiting you? Because we know when he does, he makes your head hurt. He makes your stomach feel funny. He makes your hands tingle. And then all of a sudden, there's a little space between that scary feeling and then the reaction, which we often can see a meltdown or crying or, uh, um, or, or a avoidance or withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're letting the, the child you're fostering some metacognition and awareness so that in that distance between the physical response and the mental kind of um, awareness, they can regroup a little bit. Exactly. And And you know, exactly. And I think metacognition is a great way of saying that we're helping them to think about their thinking, which I know we're going to get to is one of these primary modalities of helping them fight the worry monster is to, is to look at their thoughts. But the whole notion that they can actually think about their thinking as opposed to just react to it is a major uh-huh. component to this approach. Well, right. in interest, oh, I'm sorry. I was no, just thinking ahead. because you said, um, Dan, that you know, this is great information for kids, but I wish so many more teachers were aware of this because – when you talk about the oppositional behaviors and the meltdowns in the classroom, when we take a child and we put them in a social situation of group work or even pairing up, and I'm thinking of a particular student this week who ended up getting expelled from a different class the same day that I knew he was having fear responses and anxiety in mind. And it just broke my heart because it looked like total opposition to the other teacher, and it was indeed oppositional behavior, but the origins of it were not from the willfulness and the stubbornness. It was the survival instinct in this young man kicking in. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a teen, and, and p- people would expect that teens can verbalize these things, but indeed, a lot of our, our students, our children, even adults can't verbalize it. Mm-hmm. And can I tell you a quick story that you're reminding me sure. of? Um, This was uh, a a client that was really pivotal in helping me with this understanding several years ago. He was, at the time, a second grader, and he was very oppositional and verbally aggressive. He would often run out of the classroom. He would say very rude things in opposition to um, uh, different requests that were being made of him. And he's in my office, and I'm doing a... um, an educational evaluation to try to understand what's going on with this guy. Um, And we get to the part of the IQ test where he has to write symbols uh, on a page and he's timed. And he immediately gets that look of intenseness in his eyes and he picks up the piece of paper and he starts to rip it. Mm -hmm. And he was he was sort of seeing what I was going to do, and I just stood, I stood there, and I didn't do anything, and I was trying to coax him into doing it. And uh, eventually, 
uh, I took the paper from him because I wanted to unlock this, and I spontaneously ripped it in half and said, don't worry, we don't need to do this anymore. Let's do something else. <laughs> so he then right away asked me if he could, um, if I had tape. And because these kids that are seen as very intense are also so sweet and sensitive. So he put it, he taped it back together and asked if we could do it. The results of the evaluation after several hours of testing were that he had an undiagnosed nonverbal learning disorder and a severe visual motor problem. And so he had trouble seeing space, seeing uh, reading facial expressions. He couldn't write symbols. He didn't understand how symbols went on a page. And he was so anxious at school and in a testing situation, he would act out. And once we discovered that the root of his behavior, in addition to a learning issue that needed to be addressed and processing issue, was his anxiety, it allowed everyone to see his behavior differently, and it allowed people to start giving him the tools to manage the situation when he started to have his fight-or-flight response in the middle of the schoolroom. Right. But when um, – and you're, you're uh, back, back to the student, I'm thinking of – he carries simply an ADHD diagnosis, but as a teacher, as a mom of kids with learning issues, I know and I suspect there's more going on. And um, that's what you're saying is when we're missing something, too, that, that interferes with the child's ability to communicate and to function. Um, I think it's really important that a full assessment takes place rather than just, you know, 10 minutes in the doctor's office and or 20 or 30, however, and and got it so that looking deeper at what might be driving the anxiety is as important as understanding that you do have it and teaching kids to cope with it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, if I can jump in here, this is wonderful, fascinating conversation and such an important topic. I'm just thinking of so many conversations that Becky and I have had over the years with parents at our talks and different things that we've been involved in, support groups and with our own kids and our own experiences. But something that really caught my attention was, and I I liked what you said, that there were different types of anxiety. When we've talked a little bit about panic attacks, which for us was a was a huge thing later in adolescence and through young adulthood. And Temple has talked about that a lot on the show, about her anxiety and panic attacks. And my question is, um, give us some of the other examples of of the different types of anxiety, and um, especially, as we just mentioned, social situations sometimes can induce their own kind of social panic attack. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and I, I think it's really important for parents and teachers to be aware of all the different what what I call ballparks or neighborhoods of anxiety. Again, because we're trying to empower kids and their caretakers and teachers with the information to what to look for because the worry monster, again, this worry monster, which takes all these different forms, is always sneaky and doesn't want us to figure him out. So you talked about the panic attack. So the panic attack is the the purest form of the fight-and-flight response. Just surges of adrenaline, heart beating out of your chest, blood leaving your, your brain and your stomach, and you have the sensations that people feel like they're literally going to die or going crazy. 
and it happens to be the number one reason people end up in the emergency room. It's that, I mean, it's that scary. So when you see that in, um, in kids and adolescents, I mean, it is either a fleeing situation where the person is gone, or you see that look in their eyes and they start to sweat and they, they grab their chest and they have to hyperventilating. And really, you're, in those situations, you're just trying to help calm a person because they're in full survival mode and, and their reasoning abilities aren't going to work, as many parents have found out. You can't reason with someone when there's no blood in their brain and you think something really bad is going to happen. So that is the, that, that's the panic attack. Then there are other types of anxieties like social phobia or social anxiety. And that is really, for a lot of these kids, they are fearful of being humiliated in a social situation. They are afraid people are going to laugh at them, people are looking at them, people are talking about them. And because of that, they don't engage in those social situations. They avoid them or um, they, they just take themselves out of the situation. Then we also have the good old specific phobias, which are, these are when people's Fears are specific, like two spiders, two bridges, two snakes, two dogs. Um, I want to say I'm seeing more and more a fear of dogs. The thing about specific phobias are you can you can get around them because you just avoid the situation. But when people are afraid of dogs, dogs are everywhere. So all of a sudden you can't go to soccer games and you can't go to friends' houses and you can't go to the park. So that's something that we really want to nip as soon as possible with one of these um, Worry Monster uh, Warrior plans because we really want to take steps against, um, against these fears because it limits life. Um, other types of um, anxiety would be a fear of... Um, a fear, so agoraphobia is a fear of having a panic attack, either because you've had one or because you think you might be in a situation where something bad will happen and you can't escape. And this is what we see on TV. Sometimes people haven't left the house in 30 years or so. Now, what happens with kids is it starts really small. They don't want to go to birthday parties because something bad happened at a birthday party and they got really, really scared. And then they don't want to go to a family gathering because the same situations are there and they're feeling the same way. And then they don't want to go to restaurants because there's noises. And you can see how this stuff really expands. And before long, what happens is the worry monster takes over and a person gets really, really good at making excuses why they don't want to go anywhere. And I think what's really interesting about this interaction is that often what I've learned through my own experiences with my own kids as well is our kids are training us as much as we're training them sometimes. And so Absolutely. we're trying to deal with a very difficult situation, a highly emotional or volatile situation, and we're trying to help our kids get through it. And before long, we don't realize we are inadvertently and unintentionally supporting the avoidance behavior because yeah. it's all gotten, you know, it's just gotten a little out of control. Um, and then again, these are the reasons why we have to look at the worry monster head on and take some steps against him. What you're describing is we sort of jump into our own parental fight or flight response of trying to manage the crisis because it feels like it's a constant crisis once, once it's sort of locked in. You, yeah, absolutely. And we don't realize over time how this pattern gets set um, for the, the, the ch parent-child dynamic 
and what I call it sort of it becomes the family dance, that everyone plays their different part in the dance, and it takes a lot of wow. courage and a lot of concerted effort to turn yes. these patterns around. Well, and also, you describe the worry monster as a bully, and I wonder if there is any anxiety where the the monster actually just beats up the child inside with um, just doubts and and telling them that they're just, you know, the, the you're not worthy, you're not good enough, the perfectionism. Oh, and thank that you. that kind of yep. bad thinking just really will lock a child down quicker than anything. Well, and thanks for bringing in perfectionism because I did not mention that in our ballpark list. So that is a really, even though perfectionism is not a actual clinical diagnosis, it is a very common character personality characteristic and particularly in the bright and creative kids but across the across the uh, the spectrum of people and there there's a double whammy so what happens is the worry monster tells you that something bad's going to happen if you leave your parents or your parents leave you so that's another kind of anxiety is separation anxiety so let's say a child is afraid that something bad is going to happen to their parents unless they are with them all the time and then what perfectionism does is beats that kid up for feeling for makes them feel bad that they can't handle things on their own. So I have some clients who talk to me about how the worry monster and the perfectionist monster are best friends and they're a gang oh. and they take turns pummeling them together oh. and we need to develop different strategies to fight the worry monster and the perfectionist monster because they do have different tactics. So for example, the perfectionist monster tells you if you don't do if you don't get an A plus, you failed. I work with plenty of perfectionists who have four point sixes and the and the perfectionist monster tells them they're not going to get into college unless they continue to have a four point six. And they believe it. Right? And then they beat themselves up because they're not coping with life well and they're breaking down. And then the worry kicks in, well, well, what if I don't have a future? Well, what if I don't get into the same kind of school as my friends? Well, what if my parents are disappointed with me? And so it really is this sort of gang that the different sorts of um, worry monster, perfectionist monster, the other one I didn't mention, which always comes into play in these situations or often comes into play, is we call the OCD monster, obsessive compulsive <laughs> disorder. Right? And so... We know that a lot of people, and I want to say we're not diagnosing people here, a lot of people have OCD quirks where, right, we like to walk a certain way or do things a certain way in the morning. doesn't mean you have OCD. But a lot of people do suffer from an obsessive-compulsive process, which is very frustrating and takes up a lot of their mental space. So there are a lot of kids out there who have a little of the OCD monster usually runs with the perfectionist monster, and then they're also worried. And, the worry, and we feel like the worry monster is just the kingpin here and is just picking on these people and bullying them. Well, and then um, you have just hit such a nerve in my home with one of my children. And as they try to move into adulthood and transition through major stages in life, these three monsters together can, can have a crippling effect on them. And um, it's just uh, it's just so important to develop that toolkit early on, because the older that 
that they get and the more entrenched in the patterns and the dance that the family becomes, the harder it is to break out and deal with these things, even in therapy, because they get overlaid with so many more of the negative messages and things. And so um, the family support is so important in this. And um, you, you, I know the Summit Center said that they support families in reaching their full potential as well. And I just want to thank you for that service and, and also making people aware that these are family, family issues, not just individual issues. They are family issues, and um, as you've read in the book, and I haven't been, um, I've been getting less and less shy about, is my own experiences with um, being a pretty good worrier and perfectionist, and then looking yeah. back over my life and realizing, wow, all these things I was seeing with my client, it would have been nice to get this information. And then with my three kids, really cu- learning, um, I want to say the hard way, but the only way about how powerful uh, what a grip the worry monster and all of his friends can have on kids, and then also in a very humbling way experiencing how even a guy like myself with all my training and experience, how in the end of it you're just a parent who's trying to do the best they can in really hard situations and um, how hard it is to step outside of that dance and try to change, help uh, help your child change some of those patterns and realizing that you yourself have to be aware of them as well and make some changes too. Yes. When you, if I can just for a moment, touch on the OCD, and I know, Becky, as we both feel that, <laughs> that that is definitely sometimes one of the larger monsters. But in our work, when we were trying to really decipher some of the similar patterns we saw in the autism literature since in our first work, the autism ADHD Autism Connection, we saw so many similarities as we started writing Bright Not Broken in looking at the gifted characteristics. And when we looked at what autism calls, and it seems to be a source of a huge debate, and I'd love to have you at least give us your opinion here as we're looking at this, and that is the, the stereo-repetitive type behaviors there, thank goodness, there are some professionals, Digby Tannum, I think, was one of the papers that we looked at, who talked about, be careful you're not just looking for a physical response to this repetitive behavior that he considered, um, again, he called it not a full-blown OCD, but yet sort of a worry, a worry OCD that can be repetitive to the point that it is um, disabling. And... I think that's really important because it's a characteristic that doesn't always look so cut and dried as, you know, what we think of maybe with autism as a kid that, well, he doesn't have repetitive behavior because he doesn't sit and rock or spin, or, but yet right, his mind right. may be spinning. Tell us, tell us right. about that. Yes, and I mean, and it, it, as you're saying, it's the hardest to detect because how can you detect what's going on in someone's brain in, um, with regard to repetitive, persistent, irrational thinking if they're not expressing it and they're not doing anything to lead you to, have the, to, to give you those clues? So it is true that you can be 
OCD when you have more of the O than the C, more of the obsessions than the compulsions. And some of these kids are just spinning and spinning and spinning with different numbers in their head and different, um, they have to count a certain way. And if they, if they, if they, Think of something in the middle of their counting, they have to start over. Um, and it's this repetitive thinking. And what, what's, what's remarkable to me is how functional some of these kids still are. They're using yeah. over half their brain power on managing their obsessions while still engaging in life. And um, so, yes, I think we have to, when it comes to anxiety and worry and OCD, we need to be... I had one colleague who said, who's a child uh, therapist, who said, Dan, I start with the assumption that all kids are worrying these days about something, and if we can help them with that, we'll be able to learn more about what's going on with the rest of their aspects of their life. And now that might be slightly an overstatement, but it's really important to try to help a child articulate what they're thinking about, not in the meltdown, but in their day-to-day in and day-out basis. And the other thing that I think we have to tell them is, don't worry, it could be really silly. I've heard everything. Because most of the obsessive fears, the obsessions, they are highly irrational and the kids are really embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And so how do we make them feel comfortable enough to tell us some of the silly ones? And maybe we can tell them some of our silly ones to help them feel more comfortable. Um, But but you're bringing up a really good point. A a lot of times this is really hidden, and the only thing that you see is big behavior, not the actual stereotypic behavior that we would think we would see. Right. And then the other part of it is when you're talking about them using half of their brain power, to just continue balancing the worry and the functioning. And it's, you know, how can we get an accurate read on truly what their intellectual abilities are when this anxiety can become so crippling? And so it masks a lot of our children's abilities. It does. It does. And that's where, you know, um, IQ tests are useful, but they have... um, you can hit the wall on them too when you have a kid. You know, we were giving a feedback session uh, the other day of a, what we know to be a very bright, gifted person, and her scatter was all over the place. And what it came down to is we found out that she had a severe separation anxiety from her mom, and she was so fixated and worried about making eye contact with her through the um, through the blinds that she was an un- she was unable to focus. And then what she did on top of it. She threw the test at the end to get through the questions as quick as possible to see her mom again. And she right. did such a way that it wasn't readily apparent to us until unwinding it. And the other point that you're making, though, when you talk about how bright a person is, I think when it comes to the kids in school, we're often not looking at how bright they are. We're looking at how well they can perform. Right. And um, mm-hmm. a lot of times the brighter kids don't perform well in school and a piece of it could be that they're very anxious or have another learning issue. But that, that it, that's why it, it is tricky because um, when you look at the, the, the worry monster issues that are associated with uh, learning issues, 
when you think of the dysgraphic kid who has trouble writing or the dyslexic person or the person who's dyslexic and dysgraphic or the person who has auditory processing or attention issues, there's a lot of anxiety that just goes with being able to perform, keep up, and do the right thing at the right time like everyone else. And that, that is distracting and will impact that, that worry will impact their ability to perform and give us a good estimation of what they really know. Wow. You just described the other part of my child with the extreme anxiety. And so, you know, the, these, these children are um, just incredibly resilient. And I, I just marvel at, because I don't know if I could continue functioning under the burden of learning disabilities and anxiety and separation anxiety and perfectionism and and the whole OCD whirling that goes on in the brain and still continue to get into get, go to school and make my grades or, or just I, it just the resilience continues to amaze me and um, if there's anything that you could tell us on how to foster that. Um, I would certainly be grateful as a parent and a teacher. Um, uh, yeah, I think this is the most common thing, the co- most common challenge that um, we're seeing these days, and uh, and colleagues and I are talking about. I, I first of all, before I first want to say, I think you actually said it really well that often we're talking about these kids' lack of resilience when they're scared and they're melting down, but you just also reframed it in looking at them as actually highly resilient because even in the face of that, often they're pushing forward. So I think that's an interesting twist and I think it's valid. So this resilience thing about how do we, how do we face, how do we persevere in the face of adversity is key. And what, what I, what, what, when I was writing the book, what the, the pieces of the literature that came together was helping kids learn cognitive behavioral strategies was also very similar to what the latest resiliency research is saying, which is we need to help kids think about their thinking, which is that metacognition we were talking about, Mm -hmm. find alternative ways to look at a situation and problem solve, come up with some plans, and then practice real-time resiliency, real-time what people are calling grit, real-time durability. And so how can we give these kids the intellectual knowledge that we're talking about, the fight and flight response, the different kinds of anxieties, learning that if we identify our thinking and change our thinking, it actually turns our amygdala down. Um, If we smile and even if we fake it, it puts some neurotransmitters in our brains and we actually feel different. How do we give the kids this actual factual information and then have them practice situations which will build resilience. And this is where I think the behavior part of the model, of the the warrior worry monster model comes in, and that is setting up mini practice sessions where a child or student can take a small step against the worry monster or their fear. Because what happens is when they actually get to experience a small victory, they can get one step closer to that fear. And it really is like that, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And by, at the end of it, you've eaten an elephant. And for some of these kids that I've worked with, they would have never, ever imagined that they could conquer their severe fear. And really, it's going from A to B to C. So I think building resilience is a combination of teaching them the tools about their brain and their body, 
helping them think about how they can problem solve a situation and then putting them in a situation where they can have a victory over the worry monster. And when the victories mount, they actually gain more confidence and the resiliency generalizes to other situations. All right, I'm scribbling as you write. <laughs> as success, you're breeds success. <laughs> success breeds success. Success breeds success. And um, um, as you said, Becky, and as we wind down here, I am reminded and, you know, I think resilience is, is the key. That's one of the brightest, most shining things about our kids that sometimes the outside world doesn't see that when they don't understand the fear, the panic attacks, the inside anxiety that they're going through, then they have no clue how hard it is for them to fight even to get to minimal functioning level. And I'm I'm thinking of my son who's in a much better place now, very independent and very, um, I mean, he still, he still has these little sneak attacks of the worry monster. And I'm really going to encourage him to read your book. I think he'll love it. He, he loves um, superheroes and cartoons. So <laughs> even at 23, he does. But I, I look back and I think of my own, you know, you said something earlier, Dan, about at the end of the day, you know, we're just parents who are trying to do the best we can. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not a psychologist, but I've gained a lot of experience and and I would, you know, I'm I'm humbled by how many people have said that our books have helped them and what we've worked through, but I always want them to know and understand even after all the years and all the experience and all the knowledge that I have, there are times I'm powerless to help my child, especially in the face of those people who just because they're not trained right or they don't understand. I don't I don't always think it's the bad guys. I don't think that teachers and care providers, sometimes parents draw that line and they view them as the bad guys. They don't have the education. They don't have the understanding. And my son had a very rough time as the anxieties increased in high school and he was um he was dismissed from school because of something you said earlier because of that phobia of knowing I'm going to have a panic attack so I'm going to avoid the situation I'm going to avoid putting myself there mm-hmm. and because he missed so many days then it was a truancy issue <laughs> mm-hmm. and of course I'm saying no back way up this is an anxiety issue <laughs> And, right. you know, Becky and I both, but how, and I often think, you know, how many children, what we need to do is we've got to be educating each other, other parents, other professionals about this anxiety that when we see this kind of behavior, especially in a student identified with learning disabilities or other issues, we have to really stop and think what drove this conclusive behavior. You know, this is far from being as simple as a truancy issue, and it's really unfair to the child. Well, and what I really like, Dan, is that your approach doesn't rely on um, tranquilizers and medications nearly so much um, because that's a tendency um, for people to turn to ways, to chemical means of calming. And the last thing that we want in children and young adults is to foster any type of dependency in terms of functioning and needing a medication to do it if if we can teach them the ways to work through it first and try all of those before medication is used as a tool. Yes, yes. 
I'm really well, glad you, you brought so that up. Yes, we we absolutely love your books. We would we would love to have you back sometime to talk about your book about the creative child. You mentioned that earlier. I think that's the title of your other book. Yes, raising creative kids. Raising creative kids. Okay, yes. Um, whole another topic that would be just fascinating to talk with you about. We're we're just so uh, glad to have found you and found your books. And before we go. If you would tell us uh, where our listeners can find you, um, do you have a website, Facebook, and we know you're new to Twitter, so tell us those things. Yes, you can find find us in a few places. So um, our Facebook is Dr. Dan Peters, Twitter is Dr. Dan Peters, and uh, the book website is being built right now. It should be done within the next few weeks, and that's drdanpeters.com. And you can also find a lot more about our services and our philosophies and other articles and podcasts and the like at www.summitcenter.us. Wonderful. Well, Dan, thank you, thank so, you much. so much for all of this information. And, um, you know, you just, uh, it's wonderful as a parent to hear someone describe what we live with every day in ways that make us, it just validates us. And so I want to thank you for validating my experience as a parent and uh, and my daughter's struggles as well and um, just giving us some hope, some real hope. For thank you both for having me, and I appreciate the work that you guys are doing to spread the word about how to help our kids. Thank you, Dan, and and I second what Rebecca said. Your work is phenomenal, and you have been highly recommended to us, and I'm so glad we've connected, and I hope this will be the start of um, of wonderful sharing of resources. Me too. Well, you have a wonderful evening. I'm Diane Kennedy, and with my co-host, Rebecca Banks, the authors of Bright Not Broken, on our favorite network, The Coffee Clatch. And we thank you all. Have a wonderful evening. Good night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.